0: Welcome to the Reorient Postscript with myself and Madhavi. But first things first, I will turn it over to the Tropicalist, our correspondent in Utopia.
1: Thank you, Jesse. Not too many people know that the Greek word for Utopia means both a good place and no place. Maybe the perfect place is one that doesn't really exist. Anyway, We're taking a quick break from regular programming to examine patterns in history that might give us a sense of where we're headed to in the future. Marshall McLuhan, the influential communications theorist, was famous for saying that the medium is the message. McLuhan would say, IBM really took off once it realized it was not in the business of making office machines, but actually in the business of processing information. And in a more contemporary parallel, Social media companies are not in the business of connecting people, but rather harvesting user data. We haven't yet determined what exactly the business of 5G is, but maybe going back 1,500 years will give us a clue. We are now in the 8th century, the dawn of the Golden Age of Islam which non-Eurocentric historians are increasingly acknowledging as an era of globalization preceding our own, with Islam as the universal belief system and Arabic, the lingua franca. What were the information and communications technologies, or ICT for short, that allowed for the global spread, talking from Spain to Sulawesi, of the words of a teacher in an off-the-radar, underdeveloped, nomadic desert community. In fact, in many ancient cultures, person-to-person oral transmission was preferred. It was thought that the act of writing down or putting to paper sacred revelations somehow made them less sacred. Think about it. If somebody tells you a very powerful secret, if you write it down, it makes it that much more likely that anyone can find it and read it, thereby reducing the potency of the secret. Of course, if knowledge is power, By ensuring only a select few receive knowledge, you are also able to concentrate power in a few hands. This level of control could not work with the egalitarian proselytizing impulse of the early Muslims. As my Muslim friends like to tell me, Islam is a kind of socialism, and they wanted to get the word out to as many common folk as possible. Although the Quran was originally passed on via oral recitation, it wasn't long before it was written down first on palm leaves and papyrus, and then on a revolutionary new medium, for which the IP had just been forcefully arrested from China. Can you guess? Yeah, paper. Paper was much smoother to write on and easier to procure than the ICT that preceded it. So these two technologies, paper and writing, were key to establishing a literary culture in the Islamic world, as they greatly facilitated the transmission of knowledge. At the same time, the wealthy caliph of Baghdad, Harun al-Rashid, he put up the capital to begin a vast translation project where all the extent scientific knowledge in the world, whether Greek, Indian, or Chinese, was translated into Arabic. And having a common medium of communication, a lot like the common standards we talk about in 5G, was a necessary prerequisite for the period of scientific innovation that was to follow. At the peak of knowledge production, The largest library in the Islamic world had 400,000 volumes, while the largest library in Christendom, late to the paper party, only 2,000. But it wasn't long before this early idealism came up against the reality of political power. Too much decentralization, think edge computing, and democracy becomes populism. Now, where have I heard that before? Anyway, to push back against this decentralization two decisions were made. The first was to make Arabic the language of Islam such that the Quran could not be translated and the Arab world thus retained and has continued to do so a central authority in Islam. He who sets the standards. The second was to elevate the technology of writing to the status of a sacred art form so that not just anybody could write down the Quran Only calligraphers who had undergone years of rigorous training in a center of Islamic culture could take on this task. By the way, just as better microprocessors lead to more immersive online environments, better paper led to ever more artistic calligraphy. The story doesn't end there, however. So when the printing press, another new and revolutionary form of ICT, you all know how the Gutenberg Bible changed the course of European history. Now, the very first Quran was published in Venice in the 16th century, and it was full of errors, making it completely unacceptable to Muslims. A single imposition could cost a Quranic scribe his head, yet in the printed version, not a single page was without errors, some of which amounted to outright blasphemy. As a result, the printing press was banned in many parts of the Islamic world. The rest, as they say, is history. What do you think, Jesse? Do you think that 5G will be as momentous an invention as the printing press? Or do you think it's just a lot
0: of hype? That's a great question, Madhavi. It seems that we have been inundated with uh, news and stories about 5G for the last couple of years. And it's beginning to be rolled out now. In fact, where I am here in Hong Kong uh i'm just now uh signed up with a new 5g plan oh i would say uh yeah <laughs> so hey i'm part of the future i would say so far i haven't seen any difference so as you know the telecommunications and and to some extent, Michael discussed, there's a evolution in the telecommunications standards. So we went from, I guess, whatever it was, whatever they called it, that became 1G to 2G to 3G to 4G, which is that LTE standard that we've been on. Right. That was also, I think, very much hyped uh, prior to that to 5G. Um, now, 5G does seem to have maybe a much higher step up in terms of the potential applications because we hear things about things like autonomous driving. And uh, I mean, that's a big one. And then this, you know, the whole idea of latency, that because it has very low latency, you can stream uh, data with with no sort of hiccups. And that means there's a whole bunch of applications. So my impression is, So far, assuming 5G does have that ability to push around data, much more data, much more quickly, the applications that we've heard about have yet to either been developed or rolled out yet. So my answer
1: to your question is, I think it's too early to say. Um, Yeah, I I would tend to agree with you. And uh, that's... uh... Kind of a, a nasty cold you have there. So I hope you feel better soon. Um, <laughs> well, have you heard of this, uh, there's this Soviet economist, his name is Nikolai Kondratiev, and he came up with what's known as the wave theory. And I'm probably grossly oversimplifying it, but as I understand it, the basic thesis is that there's a major technological development every 50 to 60 years or so, and that drives a major economic growth. So The first wave would have been the steam engine. The second wave would have been the building of railroads and steel. The third would be electrification. The fourth, autos. The fifth, internet. And now maybe 5G. And the reason I bring up Kondratiev was that apparently he was mentioned in a very significant speech by the CFO of Huawei. It was a speech he gave in, in New York in 2014 and the other interesting thing about Kondratiev is that his, he 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 hypothesized that what drives these waves of technological innovation is rising inequality, which I think definitely characterizes our current period. Anyway, so apparently the higher ups at Huawei had Kondratiev in mind, and that's possibly why they have been frontrunners in 5G, investing so much in, in infrastructure, getting out there and positioning themselves to act when the moment is right. And the way I see it is that this moment could go several ways. The first is that America succeeds in its strategy of isolating China and Huawei internationally and buying it time to catch up on the 5G deployment and then it's boom time all over again. And the second is... Maybe a bit closer to what you just said—that that 5G overpromises. And I read a tweet by Gigi Son, who is a senior fellow at the Georgetown Law Institute for Technology Law and Policy, and she said that, in her opinion, 5G is like 80% marketing and 20% technology, and the hype around it is enormous, and also the hype around needing to win this this so-called 5G race. So. I think, yeah, I think the bottom line is that the jury's still out, whether this is going to be this major sort of turn in world history or if it's just business as usual. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really
0: easy for people to make eye-dropping predictions, proclamations that so-and-so is going to be the most consequential development in human history or in the last 20, 30 years. And we often forget all the many other developments, innovations, which also had significant impact. And I thought Michael did a really fantastic job of laying some of those out. And clearly the semiconductor, um, which he spent a lot of time talking about, right. was incredibly transformational. And so, so much of what the technology that we're inter- interacting with, is based on semiconductors. So uh, it's hard to think of of many technological developments much more consequential than that. The other sort of point about 5G and the sort of the promise or the marketing or the hype about it, and then we're hearing stories, and I think even in your home country of India, of countries saying, well, we're not sure that 5G is that important or that the applications maybe for our country um, you know, does India really need autonomous driving? It's <laughs> a little bit hard to imagine, given <laughs> India's infrastructure.
1: Who in their uh, right mind, right? Unless you're suicidal, get into like a self-driving <laughs> automobile in India. There's no way. <laughs>
0: exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a challenge for the imagination, right? <laughs> autonomous vehicle navigating the unbelievably crowded, uh, narrow streets of India. And then I think it's really interesting on the flip side, in advanced countries like the United States, we've actually heard executives talk about 6G, oh. saying, oh, our focus isn't on 5G, but it's on 6G. And I don't know exactly what 6G is supposed to do. So it just shows that perhaps we don't know the the whole story. Perhaps this will be the 5G decade and we'll find out that it this it sort of, um, what was his name again? <laughs> um, uh, Kondratiev. Kandratia, you know, perhaps he's correct. And Huawei has uh, seized this moment and it will um, be the dominant firm because it embraced 5G so enthusiastically. Or, maybe there's another scenario where 5G starts to look more like 4G and 3G and 2G as one step evolutionary in this long progression of telecommunications innovation we've seen now for many decades.
1: Yeah. And okay, so just going back to the case of the US and Canada, right? And this is something that Gigi Son and a a bunch of other people have said repeatedly that the sort of more immediate or pressing need before 5G, especially now during COVID, is to ensure broadband access for a larger swath of the population. And I think I've I've told you this before, but even here in Toronto, if you go just a few hours north of the city, you know, in Toronto, is like the, the economic center of Canada, right? people don't have broadband access. And during this pandemic, like a lot of kids just stopped attending school altogether because they couldn't really access online education because they have dial-up internet in this day and age and they just end up going, you know, hunting and fishing with their parents instead, right? I think uh, COVID has really highlighted this digital divide in North America, which I don't don't know. Does that... is it that bad in East Asia, especially in...
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Madhavi, sort of thinking on a um, sort of a broader national level, policy level. And my impression is in Northeast Asia, so in China, Japan, and Korea especially, the the prevalence of high-speed internet, I, I presume broadband internet, throughout their countries and populations is pretty impressive. Right. and. Perhaps that's going to start showing up in, who knows, economic data figures or business figures where those investments that they pay dividends and we'll be able to see them in in various ways. And, And that's a great question. And given the pandemic and this whole shelter in place policies, the importance of having high speed Internet into the home you know has never been greater of course in other parts of asia particularly southeast asia and, and maybe south asia i don't think the telecommunications infrastructure is as well developed in the us context you have elon musk now and he's created a satellite internet what they call a constellation called starlink and mm. so they he's going to provide and i think they're already rolling out beta trials of this of basically satellite internet access, so you anywhere on the earth, you could be a subscriber <laughs> to Starlink. And he, they're putting tens of thousands. SpaceX, his company, is installing or placing tens of thousands of of satellites around the Earth in a constellation, and they will provide internet access. And presumably that would be whatever telecom standard, whether that's 5G, 4G, or, or you know, 6G, will run on that. And so sort of back to Michael's discussion about horizontal versus vertical types of technological models. So like, as Michael was saying, I think there might be a Chinese standard for 5G and maybe a non-Chinese standard for 5G, and we might have different regions. But the Elon Musk model of having a global service that's open to everyone, I could imagine will be incredibly attractive to companies and individuals around the world. I I don't know what's going to happen with that in China, whether that'll be allowed to operate in there. But that's, I think, a really interesting, important uh, evolution in this sort of uh, internet technological ecosystem that's evolving.
1: I think it's a wonderful idea. I also foresee that a lot of national governments might have a problem with it. I know, for example, that so there's a region in the Himalayas where I work and it's at the border of India and Pakistan. And you are not allowed to use satellite phones in that area because it's highly sensitive. Right. So I think there are regions where it's sort of in government's interests to keep the connectivity down to an absolute minimum. And those tend to be like... Indeed,
0: indeed. Yeah. And that's going to be one of the tensions, right, between security issues and the need for people to access the internet, global internet, right, uh, to develop and take advantage of the global economy. And each country is going to try to find, I guess, a balance (laughs) uh, that works for them and and their own uh, particular uh, situation in in their certain areas. So, uh, yeah, that's...
1: uh, I mean, I tend to be a bit. There won't of an be Elon.
0: one size fits all.
1: And Elon Musk yep. uh, skeptic, so you know, let's see, let's see.
0: And I'm a Tesla owner, so laying okay. my cards on the table, uh, I, I was one of the first Tesla owners in Hong Kong, and, and have boy. followed him okay. for ten years. I'm a huge fanboy. and my biggest regret is not having bought his shares. And uh, you know, I could well, have you bought the car, uh, but you didn't not, buy the shares. <laughs> exactly. So that was my biggest regret, and I could have probably retired from my day job if I had when I first started learning about him. But Good, uh, he's certainly someone to watch. And he's been a uh, controversial. There's been a lot of skepticism about him, obviously, over many years. But now Tesla's just been included in the S&P 500. And it's the biggest right. um, company ever to be included, right. meaning that they normally smaller than they're included. So he is now uh, officially part of the establishment in the United States of established corporations. Okay. These, well, you know, I hope, I I hope one day,
1: Jesse, we can have him on this podcast.
0: (laughs) Me too, I I do too. That's okay. We'll make that a a goal. And and as you know, he has a huge factory in China, and so um, and they're producing Teslas in China. So I imagine, uh, hey, Elon Musk, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the Reorient podcast. That's right. Um,
1: <laughs> so, okay, so here's the other possible outcome, right, with the 5G. And uh, that is that instead of the world sort of becoming flat, it ends up sort of splintering into these different silos, right? And in fact, that is, in fact, what happened with uh 3G in Japan. And it's a phenomenon that Japanese business schools call galap. Galapagosization, like after the Galapagos Islands and the Galapagos turtle. How do you say that right? in Chinese? Yeah, I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, the idea there is that, so Japanese, or Japanese. Uh, uh, 3G phones, maybe gar- got of Okay, I'm not even. <laughs> uh, so the idea is that these these three G phones, Japanese three G phones, were already so advanced in comparison to the rest of the world. They sort of spun off and evolved into their own species, right? Like the turtles. And I I remember. So I worked in Tokyo for a year in 2008, and when we moved there, that was just a year after the iPhone came out in North America, and there was all this hype about it. But when I arrived in Tokyo. This Japanese phone that I had, you know, it had all the features, right? I could use it to pay for my Metro tickets, buy stuff at the 7-Eleven, take photos, download music, email, and even watch TV. So, but the Japanese were not really able to get a huge amount of overseas business out of, you know, sort of their advanced technology, because even today, like you know, who uses Panasonic phones, right? And the Japanese had adopted 3GS as early as 2001, but what happened was the rest of the world dragged... Their feet and the Japanese phones just became too advanced for the rest of the world. So their phone makers focused on the domestic market instead, which was pretty lucrative. But then they became so specialized and so focused on the peculiarities of that market apparently Japanese really like clamshell phones, which was actually the the model that I had too, uh, that they mm. ended up missing out on the global smartphone boom. Now, I'm sure companies like Huawei have probably paid attention to the Japanese case, and maybe this is why they're focusing on developing 5G infrastructure overseas first. But I don't think they properly anticipated maybe the geopolitical developments and the breakdown of the U.S.-China trade relationship.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, my conversation with Ronnie Chan obviously talks a lot about that and that shifting nature and and it has evolved really quickly. Yep.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible then that despite all the hype about, you know, 5G ushering in a new era of global interconnectivity, what's going to happen is just the rest of the world's going to say, not for us, thanks, we're not ready yet. And China's just going to go ahead. And it might end up being like a Japan 3G situation. That's a really
0: interesting point, Madhavi. And I read that somewhere, I think around 50 countries now have announced sort of restrictions on companies accessing their telecommunications network and putting in perhaps stricter evaluation measures, which... I think that seems to be aimed at more or less at Huawei or much of that aimed at Huawei. And your point also about that the standard or the technology that's most broadly adopted isn't always the most advanced or the best. And and you mentioned with the Japanese cellular phones. And we've seen this also many times in history. So we saw this way back uh you might not remember this but way back in the 80s when people were watching movies home movies or movies on on cassette and there were two technologies there's one called betamax and one called vhs and they were vying to find a standard in, in the us market i guess eventually global market and betamax was considered superior but somehow vhs managed to win and then every home movie uh was on vhs and another example and I think Michael alluded to this too in our talk, is with CDMA and uh, yeah. GSM. So that was, those are, um, I think, 3G, if I'm not mistaken, uh, telecom. Yeah. And generally my impression was CDMA was, is superior to GSM. Oh, really? But somehow GSM, yeah, somehow GSM okay. won out to become the most popular standard. So for an innovator in technology it's not enough just for them to think about the uh, how advanced their technology is, but how will it be accepted more broadly by the rest of the world?
1: Yeah, um, I also think uh, you know those are all really, really good points. And I just wanted to add to that by saying that it's probably a really good idea to see what China does in this space. I think China has actually done a fairly good job till now of sort of maintaining the balance of power between government and technology. And in the West, we sort of tend to treat it as a all or nothing situation where, you know, either you're fully... Open to the entire world, or you're like completely isolated, right? But if you look at both China and even Japan, right, throughout history, there have been times where they engaged more with the outside world, and times when they sort of engaged less, right? But at no time did they completely close doors. Even Japan, you know, although there's this this sort of canard out there that oh, Japan sort of closed itself off to the outside world for a a couple of hundred years, that that wasn't actually quite true. They just basically shut. It's gates to the Portuguese and Spanish Catholic missionaries, but they were still engaging with the Dutch East India Company and a couple of other foreign countries. But the thing that they've always done is they've kind of let domestic policy and domestic uh, sort of internal politics drive their policy of engagement. And I think that is probably the way that most countries are going to go, right? That we're going to see whether does it meet internal needs to adopt 5G to sort of kick down more borders, right? And sort of engage more with the world or is does it at some point become a little bit too chaotic internally? And I think that's maybe probably where we're going to see things go one way or the other going forward.
0: Madhavi, I totally agree with you. I think China, in fact, I wrote an article about you this did. in the South China Morning yes. Post. The China is, I think, presents a great role model for other yes. countries yes. of how to go about managing, in a sense, overseeing technology such that you get the benefits of it and you might limit the downside. Because we do know there's a lot of downsides, particularly to social media type of of innovations and maybe some other technology. In China, uh, the Chinese government clearly has been on top of this and I think presents a really great case study. And I think, as you alluded to, each country, I I don't think they can really sort of do a laissez-faire approach to letting the technology just run, uh, wreak havoc and run wild over it. And so there needs to be a very prudent, a very wise, a very forward-looking managing of technology and in, in technological companies and, and innovations. And I mean, we just saw uh, actually recently in China that they're announcing some antitrust measures aimed at technology companies, I think, there for the first time. So there's going to be a lot of eyes on that. But in any case, each country will need to come up with policies, as you said, that really suit their political system, their culture, that probably you don't want it to hold them back that, that helps further advancement, but in a way that, that doesn't create too much either division or tensions or Negative consequences in their own societies.
1: Yeah, that's right. Make tech work for us, not we don't work for tech. I like it. Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> that's exactly. Make tech work for us. So, um, Madhavi, I think we're I think we're at the end of our discussion analysis right. uh, section. It was always fantastic talking with you, and always feel like we're only just scratching the surface. There's so much more to do, but fortunately, we're going to have many more of these over the next uh, months and years.
1: That's right. Uh, It was a pleasure talking to you as well, Jesse. Take care of that cold and I hope you get better soon. Okay, till next time.